Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 84. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today we're going to be reacting to an article from the March 6th Boston Globe entitled, Is Criminality Genetic? Scientists Don't Know Because They're Afraid to Ask. And this was submitted to us by a listener. And as is often the case when reacting to articles like this, Caroline, I'd really love to know what your impressions were as you were reading this article. I was both initially kind of taken aback by this article and then kind of warmed to it as I went along because it is so different from how I think normally. In my anthropology classes in college, I feel like the idea of socialization and being conditioned by cultural means has really enriched my way of thinking and engulfed it in a lot of ways. And so thinking about still incorporating that way of thinking, but then using a more biological approach, which I have really been cautioned against using, was very uncomfortable for me in a good way. It made me think, Yes, I have my own opinions about how we should think about the way crime is both portrayed and executed in this country. But then also, you know, there is some grounds in saying that we are at a fundamental biological level based in the genetics of our parents. And there has to be something deeper there. It can't just be that we are all culturally established. I think there is some truth in, or there may be some truth in our personalities and tendencies, behaviors being based in the genetics of heredity. What did you think? I had similar responses and I thought throughout this, not only about genetics and criminality, but about science and areas or borders that scientists are not willing to cross, which I respect. And I've wondered at times if it's worth ethical or moral sacrifices in the short term for long-term benefits of knowledge or scientific outcomes. And usually on a moral level, I think that that's not right because very atrocious things can be done in pursuit of quote-unquote scientific knowledge that I don't find appropriate because it dehumanizes other people or abuses them in said experiments or pursuits. Or it essentializes them. Like, oh, if we take this one study and we find that a person's biology is fundamentally like this, then that means all people are like this. And that's something to be feared, I think. Definitely. And it also projects the potential and blame into the individual and as a result removes any possibility for progress from society. And I think it's problematic to point to a group of people and say it's your job to fix what you are or who you are. And you can thank the rest of us for pointing out your inherent traits that perhaps you can't change. And I also think the idea of change is often up for debate. Many people might say, well, we've observed this to be true over the past thousand or hundreds of years, therefore it won't change. But I believe that our world constantly shows us that things we don't expect will come to pass. And that's very much true in people who can surprise you. And so I understand where scientists are coming from and not wanting to ask that question. And perhaps it should be asked, but I don't actually know. And the authors, Brian Boutwell and J.C. Barnes, were very critical of social scientists, which is one of the reasons that you might have some good insights to share as an anthropology major. And I'd love to know what you think about their critiques or comparisons of criminologists who won't explore certain things to social scientists who, according to Boutwell and Barnes, also do not explore certain ideas. 
I think at the end of the day, there's limitations to being quantitative and qualitative. And that just at a very basic level is what is going on here in their thinking. I think that with social scientists, they go in terms of this article studying something like childhood behavior. And the author talks about how oftentimes they'll study parenting techniques to see if crime rates are somehow associated with lack of self-control in a child due to parenting methods by their parents. And in order to get data like that and come to some sort of conclusion about that, usually it's executed in terms of studying a child's behavior. And oftentimes there isn't a very large sample size when that's done. You can't take 100 anthropologists and put them all in households at the same time to study 100 kids all at the same time. That is something that is very rare. It certainly sounds possible, but it is definitely not very feasible. So in that way, we're missing a kind of control group that these two authors are emphasizing is very important, and it certainly is. But if you only take something at a genetic biological level, even if you have a larger sample size, you are missing the kind of nuance that you do get from doing a long-term individual study on one person or child. And there's strengths to both areas. It's understandable why quantitative, and in this field I'm referring to looking at genetic analysis because you can sample a ton of people's DNA and then analyze it and come up with a bunch of numbers that is comprehensible or you can make it comprehensible to the general public and people tend to latch on to that because it's concrete, clear, and with qualitative data, usually it comes in the form of some sort of ethnography or longer description, which no one wants to read if you're not really that interested in it or if you're not invested in it. So I understand why these authors are critical of qualitative research, but obviously biology and genetics specifically are not empirical. You can't observe them. So a social scientist isn't going to go and observe someone's genetics. That's sort of impossible without a microscope and test tubes. And so reducing a person just to their genetics and biology feels simplistic and reductionist to me. And I also picked up on details of simplicity in this article because I was thinking about what might predispose someone to act in a criminal fashion. And one of the first thoughts that I had is that being labeled a criminal is a societal factor. And so there are certain societies where laws might be different and therefore genetics that are shared between families or people might not be expressed as criminal behavior in different societies. So even there, the act of trying to quantify something is very problematic in a social science. And furthermore, as the article somewhat alludes to, neighborhoods and communities play a role in criminality in an individual, which I capitalized on as well in my thinking, although not in the same way that Boutwell and Barnes do. I was thinking a lot about how certain people, in order to survive, feel a need to behave in a criminal fashion on a very basic level. Stealing, which is seen as a crime, I'm sure, in most, if not all, communities around the world, could be described as a certain apathy or malevolence towards society. But it's also a very understandable behavior if you're stealing food for your family or to feed yourself. And so I worry that in quantifying certain genetic characteristics, you won't capture that complexity and nuance that some people could be seen as brave for stealing, knowing full well that they might be punished, but because they care for a child of theirs or a family member who they are trying to feed or keep alive in some way. 
And I also think that the article does not talk about certain environmental factors that affect genetics and the very obvious ways that radioactivity or chemical presences can alter genes. Similarly, environmental factors like scarcity of food or temperature can affect the way that organisms, including people, evolve over time. And I'm not saying that we're observing something evolutionary. But if a certain neighborhood or community has a very hostile environment, certain scientists might say that it encourages crime, but those individuals in the community might say, well, it hardened me and made me tougher, and your analysis of me as a criminal isn't entirely fair and does not take into context all of the things that I had to deal with growing up, which, sure, to an outside individual can be judged as criminal, but again, that's only through the lens of a legal system, which often ignores personal factors, psychological factors, and cannot always appreciate nuance because the legal system is aimed at being very black and white in many ways, saying that you are either a criminal or a law-abiding citizen. And many of us fall on a spectrum between those two extremes. And I don't feel as though this article got at that nuance. I agree. One thing that really stood out to me in this article that I felt was very implicit, but they didn't want to say it. I mean, it's ironic that the name of this article is called, is criminality genetic? Scientists don't know because they're afraid to ask. It felt like the main thing that went unsaid is the idea that race is implied whenever you talk about crime rates in the U.S. With the fact that the highest number of incarcerated peoples in the U.S. are African-American and they're saying that crime rates might be genetic, there is a huge, very racist implication there that because a person is black, they are more inclined because of their genetics to commit a crime. And maybe that's why scientists and criminologists are afraid to ask questions like that because of what it implies. But at the same time, I feel like a large population of the U.S. would be very comforted by the high crime rates of African Americans being based in biology that would explain something that would validate this racial fear that we have in the U.S. And what stands out to me is that in scientists being, quote, afraid to ask, the question may not go unanswered by science, but in a legal system which continues to incarcerate African Americans disproportionately, the law claims to have the answer to that question. And until that legal system is challenged by science, I think we'll continue to see disproportionate levels of incarceration. And so I don't know what the actual answer is. I'm prone to believe that there isn't a racial component in criminality. But I think that if scientists ask that uncomfortable and potentially racist question, if they were truly objective about it, they would come to, through a very uncomfortable process, I'm sure, a logical answer that says there is no genetic or racial basis in criminality. But in hesitating to ask that question, I think you'd be a bit foolish to say, well, society must leave it at that and say, well, oh, there is no answer because there are absolutely portions of society, and I think this is true of all of us, who will not wait for an answer to be given. Our minds love continuity, and if a question is posed, most people will come up with their own answers. However insensitive or crude or racist or correct, the mind will, by nature of its function, come up with an answer. And on some level, I'd rather scientists ask an uncomfortable question because of a societal flaw, and I would say that is being racist in the way that we approach our treatment of crime, to eventually get at a more substantial answer instead of this uncomfortable and amorphous silence that leads to 
as we've said now, a disproportionate level of incarceration. But again, it's not black and white. It's very nuanced and difficult to approach certain questions about the nature of who we are. And I can appreciate that. And honestly, it's probably for the best that I'm not leading any of these investigations because we're all biased and it's so difficult to unpack any of these issues. Exactly. I mean, now that I'm refreshing my memory a little bit, I think it's been scientifically proven that on a genetic level, people who are white, black, Asian, whatever, are not that different. But somehow that hasn't seemed to infiltrate our culture nearly as effectively and pervasively as the concept of race, even if it is a non-real social construction. It is very real, but it is not biologically real. But I think with the link between race and crime rates, and if you incorporate genetics into that, people are going to maybe incorrectly connect the dots and say, oh, genetically, African Americans are more prone to commit crimes. And then doesn't that become like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, or could? And that was something that I really fear from taking a solely biological approach, which I don't think is what these authors are promoting. I think they're asking for a more concerted effort to combine both qualitative and quantitative, which I think would be interesting in a lot of the studies that I've read that have to do more with how people are socialized and conditioned from a young age based on the environment and culture they live within, and then incorporating how their genetics may also tie into that. That could be really fascinating in a lot of ways. I'm not sure that their stress on genetics should be nearly as accredited, because I do think when you look at something solely with a biological lens, you need to take it with a grain of salt because your biology shouldn't determine who you are. But they do have an interesting point, I think, at the end of the day. And it, it made me think differently about the way you can study something or the way that humans may develop. And I find it interesting when you say that biology shouldn't determine who you are, because I think there are various critics and I can hear them in my head saying, well, you can't be an Olympic athlete if your body isn't up to certain standards. Or if you aren't of a certain height, do you really expect to be an exceptional basketball player? Or if your eyesight isn't superb, could you really be a great astronomer or pilot, etc.? And I think that there are interesting arguments there and perhaps they are correct. But I think the key here is that the genetics being mentioned are not so much linked to physical traits as they are to psychological predispositions, which, again, psychology is an ever-developing field. Our understandings of humanity continue to develop and expand over time. We are, all things considered, a relatively young species, and society as it exists today is also a relatively recent invention. And so we will continue to learn these things about one another and ourselves. But I would argue, as these authors often do, that not only do parents have an effect on who we are as people, but everyone around us, everything around us. In the past four years at college, I know that I've changed in substantial ways that maybe aren't always physically apparent. But my perspectives on other people, my awareness, although it still is limited, of race and gender issues and other forms of inequality in our world and in our country, these things are developing, have developed, and will continue to develop over time. And I don't think that's necessarily because I'm an open-minded person. I think that's largely because of the people that have surrounded me and been a part of my community which granted you can't always control, but as a society you can share information and techniques with the people in various communities that involve compassion and education. And I think together those are two forces of many others that could help limit crime. 
And one of the general details that bothered me about this article is that I think criminality is being diagnosed in people. And I don't think that we should be thinking about how to cure criminality. I think you should look at a society or societies plural that encourage crime in certain ways. I know students, as we've grown up, have argued that our education system encourages cheating in very subtle ways because grades are the most important thing according to the system we live in. And that is implied, even though it isn't always said overtly. Similarly, I think we should look at society through a critical lens and say, what aspects of the way we live our lives, how we structure our communities may not encourage, but allow for crime. Do people feel as though crime is the only way that they can get ahead? Because however you might feel about the world we live in, the deck does seem stacked. It's not a fair system. You can look at wealth inequality and disparity. And to me, that's testament to the fact that everyone is not given equal opportunity. And I know that a number of people who are successful, often in a financial sense, might point to science as an indicator of what certain people lack and their inability to succeed, to thrive. But I don't think that's fair or accurate. And if anything, I would argue that our organization as people in coming together to form a society allows for those who are better off to help those who are less fortunate, which some might construe as communist. But I think we are capable of great compassion and assistance for those who are less fortunate and also of illuminating capacities that some people don't know that they have. And in that way, this article seems very pessimistic to me on some levels. But I apologize for my ramblings there. Do you have anything you'd like to respond to? I agree. I mean, one thing that I've become hyper aware of since coming to college is the idea of structural factors that are completely out of someone's control, impacting them in substantial and often detrimental ways. Now that I've read this article, I'm intrigued that genetics may play a role in that. But that seems, as I said, intriguing to me rather than something that would make sense. If we think about ourselves, like, yes, I am similar to my mother in some ways. I'm similar to my father in some ways. But if they weren't my mother and they weren't my father, would those aspects of my personality that I have in common with them be drawn the same way because I'm related to them or not related to them? If I'm kind and my mom is kind, but what if she weren't my mom? Would I be kind because of her? Probably not. That's a kind of weird behavioral idea to draw on. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yes, some of my behaviors are similar to my mother, but they're not identical. So I really do wonder if it's because of genetics or just because I've spent the first 18 years of my life in the same house with her and same with my father. And I think social correlations like that need to be taken into account. As I'm sure a number of listeners know, Hector and I started this podcast having not really known one another. And it's become, without a doubt, one of my favorite things that I've ever done and that I get to do on a consistent basis. And he's not a parent of mine. He's not biologically related to me. And although he is most certainly a friend of mine, I didn't meet him until I was 20 years old and almost done with college. So I would argue at least using that as an anecdotal comparison, people can have very powerful impacts on you with very little time or with very little foreknowledge of who you were as a person or having shared a childhood with you. Much less your genetic makeup. 
Exactly. And so I feel it's a bit closed minded to only look at biological or genetic factors because people continue to affect us throughout our lives. And we may grow more psychologically crystallized or in aspects of our personality may become more stagnant over time. But I don't think that's true of everyone. And I would also argue that if people are reminded of their ability to change and to adapt throughout life, not only in its early stages, we might actually see less crime. And if would be criminal criminals were encouraged of their potential to explore other areas of human expression and lifestyles, again, I think we would see a shift in society. And I don't think that's a purely idealistic thing to say. I think it's all about how we use our resources as a society. But before we close this episode, what are some things you would like the audience to think about after listening to this conversation? I think more than anything, I really champion qualitative data. I think the nuance you get from it is so different than quantitative. And so a study comes out that says 30% of people in the U.S. like McDonald's and 70% like Burger King. And then you actually look at the data and it's like in a thousand person sample size. And oh, they may not have asked questions about other restaurant chains. And I think you have to really take into account when you see a headline that says Burger King, most dominating restaurant chain in the U.S. You have to take it with a grain of salt and really read the fine print when it comes to quantitative data because chances are they're leaving out a lot. That being said, qualitative data has its weaknesses, but I do think you're going to get a much broader picture of what's actually going on through qualitative data than through just simply numbers, even if those numbers may be more objective. And I'm glad that you mentioned objectivity because there may be scientific studies that purport to be objective, but they are carried out by subjective beings. And all of us are, of course, very subjective. So I would encourage a degree of skepticism when consuming scientific studies or conclusions because there have been some very problematic conclusions in science's history that have limited our knowledge as a species and have prevented both intellectual and societal progress. And so I think it's worth asking yourself to what degree studies conducted by people you've never met that purport to know what you are and who you are from a top-down perspective are going to determine how your life plays out because they may know aspects of your character and identity, but they're never going to have the whole picture because arguably even the individual does not have that. And I would always encourage people to be self-reliant and skeptical and open-minded about various ideas and optimistic about individual power to shape its own destiny in the end. And I think, you know, maybe down the line, genetics will be a determining factor in what defines human behavior. But I think to that end, genetics still just put up boundaries between people. If they come out with some study that says, people with this gene act like this, that's determining that person's overall behavior for them. And maybe that's true, but also I think if you just interacted with that person and crossed that boundary, you'd find that maybe that person didn't behave to that extreme, or maybe you'd have a lot more in common with them than you thought. Even with all the scientific data coming out more and more, that does, I think, put up a lot of boundaries between people and determines what people are like and what people aren't like. At the end of the day, we are all the same species. And if we just interact with each other, we may find that we are a lot more communal than we think. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. And with increasingly sensitive topics, there are bound to be myriad opinions and perspectives. And we would love to hear from you. So if you have opinions, comments, criticisms, or feedback of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. 
where you can like our page and get updates when we post new episodes. And you can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show, which helps to expand our conversation, as well as sharing it with a friend you think might enjoy what we discussed today. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.